Some, one person does. It's good to be here uh, this evening. I'd like you to know that I did my formative educational experience at Harvard University. <laughs> he just did an extra degree there. I actually did my foundational degree, my bachelor's at Harvard. Didn't seem to affect him at all. <laughs> Well, I've been informed by a youngster here that I went over seven minutes last, last week. They, she said she was they were timing me, and I found out that that clock up there was actually off, so I have a halfway decent excuse. We got a lot to talk about this evening. It's my pleasure and honor to be here with you. I appreciate, by the way, the, the warm hospitality that's been showed to me uh, while I'm here. And... Uh, Yesterday, Stephen and I uh, took a trip down to the Museum of the Bible down in Washington, D.C., and I uh, nearly died of fright on the way back, um, riding in the car with him driving. <clears throat> it's almost as scary as reading the book of Revelation. Well, after all that, I hope we can, uh, we can hear what the Spirit says uh, this evening to us as we uh, make our way further into the book. We will be seeing a few dis disturbing scenes this evening, and the effect on the reader of the book is to make them uneasy and unsettled uh, and perhaps a bit uncomfortable, while at other times in the book we become encouraged and we become hopeful. So that's sort of par for the course. So hopefully in the time we've spent together the last several weeks, I will have left you with some food for thought and hopefully left you with more questions than we started with. All right? More questions. I thought, I thought that uh, speakers are supposed to come with the answers. Well, I bring more questions than answers. This evening we're going to be making our way through several chapters. Our objectives in this end time marathon end time with the double entendre this evening to cover some highlights of chapters 6 through 11. And 11 marks the midway point of the book. We are, I, I am, however, there's a blooper for you, going to cap off the end of the session this evening by treating the very end of the book so we'll have more, some sense of uh, finality in our four sessions together. We, I shall also offer some help for continued study of the book of Revelation, including a summary chapters 12 through 22, as well as some recommended resources. So let's begin by some learning points, talking about what I'm going to tell you this evening, some things that you should hopefully walk away from uh, having a better understanding. So we'll start out front. The judgments that we'll be looking at are primarily persuasive, not punitive. What do I mean by that? They are designed to persuade readers of the book to get on board with God's plan. So the primary purpose isn't to scare people out of their, their wits, but to persuade them in a particular rhetorical fashion to get on board. Number two, while the redeemed saints may or may not be living during some of the judgments, the judgments are not intended for them, right? Right? The brunt of these judgments is not for those who are living for God, but for those who are not. 
The church is in the church in its prayers and witness, both lifestyle and verbal, plays a critical role in God's end time plans to persuade lost souls to repent and to restore a broken creation. So the book of Revelation is not simply about what God is doing up there in heaven, but it's about him recruiting us, the church, to be involved in his end time plans. And this will come into particular focus in chapters 10 and 11 that we'll be covering later this evening. The Lord, uh, the Lord, the church must move beyond its escapist mentality. I'm out of here. I'll fly away, right? An obsession with time charting. Get out of the dugouts and step up to the plate, right? If you're reading the book of Revelation just to figure out to try to figure out, and you won't figure out, but to try to figure out when we're out of here, when does our plane leave, the, leave the, the, the airport and the runway so I can get out of this, you've missed the point. The point is God wants to use the church in his end time ministry to the fallen world that we live in. So some questions to ponder as we think about this. Does 6-1 start a countdown to the end? All right. Some of these questions are going to just linger. I'm not going to answer them. They're going to linger. Are the series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and we won't get to the bulls this evening, that begin here, are they meant to be taken as sequential or chronological events? Are they meant to be taken one after the other, or is there some sense in which these three cycles actually uh, overlap, or perhaps are even talking about the same a general uh, sweep of events, but from different angles. Next question, are the images and symbols to be understood literally or not? Another question to let linger. What do they mean, what, what do they mean to Revelation's first readers? Right. So what did the first readers, the, 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 particularly the seven churches of Asia Minor, what were they thinking what was going on in their imaginations as they were listening to this book being read aloud and these images were being described uh, to them? Some more questions. What purpose do these calamities serve? To whom are they directed? And what do the open seals suggest about fear itself? Consider the fact that in Revelation 21.8, John writes that, but the fearful shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. If we read the book of Revelation and we walk away terrified, maybe we're on the wrong side, right? Are we supposed to be terrified by the book? Or not? <laughs> All right. Some other, another question, one last final question. Vexing question. Let's see if that works up there. Yay, it works. Though it looks like he's going to crash. Um, what is the relationship between the rapidly paced depictions of judgment? I call this turbulence. Is it working? Well, he's getting some, hitting some turbulence up there. You ever been on a plane, right? I've had some flying back and forth to, to Philadelphia. Turbulence, where you tense up and and, and you're rocked around, and there's other times where it's as calm as can be. And we're going to see in the book of Revelation, there's this interplay between full-fledged turbulence. 
things are happening at a rapid pace, and we are, and you're getting the readers getting jostled around. In other places where it's it's serene, and we and and John sort of takes a time out and and begins to talk about uh, some other behind the scenes factors. So what is an interlude? We're going to be looking at a couple of very important uh, key interludes in the book. They are exp uh, explanatory breaks or intermissions in the narrative. So, uh, think about um, uh, one of nature, nature's interesting creatures, the inch bug. Right? It kind of winds up and then goes, and winds up and then goes. Some others. Uh, traffic. We, we got some of this yesterday. We'd be going along at 85, 90, 95, 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'd grab the, uh, the, the panic bar up, up on that Buick, and I said, stop! as all these red lights appeared in front of us. And magically, we stopped. And you could feel the G-forces on, working on you when that happened. Hurry up and wait. Or how many of you are old enough to remember the slinky? Let's see if that, does it work? Oh, yeah, it works. Falls down. How many? <laughs> That's pretty typical. I'll make about two steps, and then it would, the slinky tenses up and then releases. Or if you've ever been on a roller coaster that, that I talked about, I think, the first evening, heading up, it's beautiful. You're just relaxing until terror around the bend. And it's this horrible, fast drop off. So we're going to be looking at some interludes uh, this evening. So let's, I'm going to introduce the four cavaliers. Some of you, these may be your favorite characters in the entire book of Revelation, the four horsemen. Does anyone remember the four horsemen? Let's take a look at the four horsemen. The four horsemen, by the way, are grouped together. There's some distinctive features that separate them from the other uh, a set of seals that are opened. And so let's take a look at some of these four horsemen. Each one, in each case, John hears an order from one of the four living creatures. So the four horses are matched up with the four creatures. Remember the four strange uh, uh, cherubim that live around the throne. Well, each one of them uh, has something to say related. Each one of those is matched to each one of the four horsemen. And John is directed to come and see. Horseman number one is the white horse. And we might be, this is the first seal, we might recall uh, that this white, this rider on a white horse, which some, I think, have mistakenly uh, correlated with the white horse in chapter 19. Christ returns on a white stallion with a double-edged sword. I don't think this is referring uh, specifically to Christ. Uh, he's a mountain atop a white horse. He has a crown. He's going out to conquer, conquering and to conquer, mocking Roman invincibility. The Romans uh, believe that they, they were the, the greatest kingdom that had ever existed, and arguably they were up to that time. Uh, they were conquerors. And yet here comes this mounted uh, uh, person, uh, probably having some uh, echoes of, of the barbaric hordes, the horsemen that would ride in it into their borders and conquer. And so they were reminiscent of the mounted Parthian bowmen. Let's move on to the fiery red horse. Look at that. Anyone, any kids out here, you want your parents to buy you a horse? You need one like that. 
comes complete with a rider, a teacher to teach you how to ride with a sword. The second seal, the second seal, deadly, horrific. So what was Rome all about? The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. How did they achieve it? Through the sword. Well, here comes a rider, and what will this rider do? Remove peace from the earth and cause war and all kinds of calamities, that they should kill one another. Uh, there was given to him a great sword. Where is your confidence today? Is your confidence in our government and in its military prowess and its ability to attack, invade, uh, to stop invaders and terrorists and so forth? No, our hope is in Jesus Christ who sits on a throne ruling the universe. Amen? All right. We're now introduced to horse number three, the black horse. Amen. Dark. Does not come bearing good news. It is the third seal, and the rider held a pair of scales. And a voice amongst the four creatures says, a measure of wheat for a denarius, one day's wage for a standard laborer, and three measures of barley for a denarius. You know what this indicates? Starvation, inflation, uh, the average person's inability to, to uh, take care of their family. Uh, the money just didn't go, didn't have the power that it used to have, and now people are uh, having to pay enormous prices for everyday commodities, everyday staples. So it signified severe shortages of food staples, inflation, and famine. But do not harm the oil and the wine, which is a statement that has perplexed uh, scholars uh, to no end, wondering if this means that the wealthy will not be affected. Uh, these are more, uh, compared to these other staples, more what we might call luxury items. So the third seal. So thus far we have... We have uh, 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 conquering, we have war, and we have famine and inflation. Now we come on to the pale horse. The pale horse. What does the pale horse signify? It is the fourth seal. The rider's name was called Death, and Hades, the abode of the death, followed with him. He was granted power over, a power over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, it's interesting as we progress through these various judgments upon the earth, they get, incre they get increasingly worse. We go from one-fourth, three-quarters, right, to one-third in, uh, in the judgments of the trumpets. So larger portions of the population are wiped out uh, through these, um, these judgments. So this one is called death. People are killed in a, in a variety of ways, sword, hunger, and by wild animals. And so this seal denotes war, famine, pestilence, and an infestation of wild animals, uh, maybe who knows what, lions, tigers, bears, oh my, right? How would you like to meet one of those coming out of your house, attacking you? We lived out in the country growing up, and my dad was attacked by a rabid fox, which he 
uh, managed to dispatch with a, he was carrying firewood and took, put it out of its misery. So these judgments are probably Brickelonian thought, not chronological. And Craig Keener writes, it is doubtful that we should read the four writers or other judgments as a chronological map of history before the end. Rather, they are probably images of the kinds of judgments that characterized that time, arranged in sequence in which, God, uh, which John saw them. Moving on now to the fifth seal. The first four seals were horse, horsemen, right? Now we have a, a very uh, 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 surprise, surprising shift in the significance. The prayers of the dead, and I'm not going to cross swords with anyone here theologically over can the dead pray, but evidently the saints of God who had been martyred had access to God and were able to converse with him. And this, this, as I've mentioned, this particular, uh, the fifth seal interrupts the patterns that we've seen with the previous seals. There's no horses or living creatures, but souls of the martyred crying to the Lord for vengeance. And everything sort of comes to a stop here. There's not riders furiously pounding away, galloping on horses, but now we stop, we see a scene back in the throne room where we've been previously. And those who had been martyred, we remember Antipas was one of the, uh, the, the uh, martyrs from one of the churches. And so motion stops and they begin to cry out. The setting is changed. And here we have the first reference in the book of Revelation to the altar. And hang on to that because we're going to see later something strange happening with this altar. It will talk. Voices will again come out of the altar. And what is their question? How long, O Lord? How long before you avenge our uh, martyred blood on our murderers, our killers? The martyrs request the time frame of judgment, just like many people today when they study the book of Revelation. Guess what? He just says, hang in there, don't worry. The time is coming. It'll happen by and by, but don't try to figure it out. They're given white robes and instructed to rest until the tally. Others will join them until that tally is fully complete. You know, we, it's very easy for us to, living in America to, to think that we're exempt from anything like that happening. Well, I would only remind you of the events of the 1930s in which that happened in Nazi Germany. Uh, within a very short time, the entire social order had, had radicalized and... Uh, as we know, the, the Holocaust took place. And we know that in many countries today, uh, Pakistan's a recent example, Sri Lanka and other places, Christians are, are reg routinely uh, murdered for their faith. We move on now to the sixth seal. The sixth seal, what happens there? Climactic, cataclysmic, and cosmic disillusion. The, in, the universe comes unglued, right? Everything starts to fall apart in the universe. Now, what, what did God do in Genesis chapter 1? Put the sun, the, the moon, the stars. He set everything up there. Well, now what is he doing? What is or causing to happen, allowing to happen, however you want to put it? He's allowing that whole cosmic system to, to almost go reverse and go into chaos once again. We're seeing a seismic storm, a great earthquake. 
the sun turns black and the moon red. And if you've, uh, we'll, we'll quote from this in just a moment here from Joel chapter 2. The stars fall like figs in the wind. How many of you have you seen a falling star? Well, falling stars are, are typically meteors that, that enter into our atmosphere. Most of them burn up uh, before they ever hit the ground. Can you imagine entire stars coming down, crashing onto Earth? Uh, the sky rolls up like a scroll, and the mountains and islands are dislodged. Friend, that's bad news. I don't know about you. They talk about global warming. <laughs> that stuff pales in comparison to the entire universe falling apart. You think you've had a bad day? You stubbed your toe waking up, and, and uh, you broke your toothbrush, and your wife didn't cook breakfast right and all that? Wait till the, till the very heavens fall apart. The day of Yahweh has arrived. It shall come to pass in the last days. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Any of you remember that verse? It comes from Joel. And Peter said that this was being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Remember that that was the, the, the day of Pentecost and the events surrounding Jesus marked the beginning of the end. So we still live in the end times. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass, watch this, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is that talking about? In the end time, right? We live in the end times. When things begin to fall apart all around us, who's going to be saved? Those that call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Is there anyone here, you call upon the name of Jesus? Amen. All right. The terrified response. <laughs> I had fun with this, you can tell. Like Adam and Eve, everybody hid themselves in the caves and rocks of the mountains, exclaiming, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne in the Lamb's wrath. That day has arrived. Look at that, even Clint Eastwood. Go ahead, make my day. He's hiding too. Nothing against the guy. Never actually met him. Everyone who isn't saved is going to hide out of fear. What did Adam and Eve do? They hid. So again, these, are, these judgments are recapitulations. We don't really need that slide. What are the, purpose of the purposes of the judgment? I quote now from Ben Witherington. There are a whole series of judgments that happen prior to what amounts to the final judgment. This suggests that these preliminary temporal judgments should be taken as uh, seen as purely punitive, rather uh, not to be seen as purely punitive, rather they are calls to repentance and opportunities for amendment of life. As these judgments go forth, watch and we'll see this in, in future chapters, the, uh, well in several places in the book of Revelation, the author records the, the uh, result of the judgments. In some cases, think of Pharaoh, right? What did the plagues do to him? He hardened his heart. And yet, some of the judgments, as we'll see, people will actually repent. And so the judgments are designed to wake people up.
And so a question is asked, who can stand, right? And so the, the, this, the, the universe is coming unglued. The great day of his wrath has come, the day of Yahweh, which is spoken about throughout the Old Testament and into the New, the day of the Lord. And who is able to stand? Here's all these people cowering in caves, frightened, freaked out. They don't, it's over. Uh, God's going to avenge them of their sins. And yet they ask the question, who is able to stand? Certainly not these people. So the next chapter will answer the question, who can stand? So we come to what's, what is known as an interlude. We've already talked a little bit about this. What is the purpose of an interlude? Suspense. We're zipping down that roller coaster, and now we're hitting a calm point, and we're wondering about those loops that are coming up. Have you ever ridden on one of those nasty roller coasters with their loops, right? We know, it's, we know we're, we're kind of being put on hold. We know there's more to come. Relief. Well, that judgment's over. Whew. Take a breather, right? But more are coming. And also an ex explanatory digression. We're going to get a lot of important perspective and information in these digressions. So let's take a look. Sealing the 144,000, one of the most controversial chapters in all the book of Revelation. Who are these people? Is 144,000 to be taken uh, literally or not? Well, let's take a look. So four angels restore, restrain the destructive power of the wind. The four corners of the earth are, are ready to destroy everybody. But those are held back. Isn't it interesting when you look at the various judgments uh, throughout the Bible, God seems to rescue his people, right? They, they live through at least part of the difficulties, but then they're rescued. We think of Lot. We think of Noah, and we think of others uh, who God is pouring out judgments on some, but others he's, he's reserving, right? He's um, sustaining. So another angel arrives with the seal of the living God and commands to temporarily refrain from damaging creation any further. And so 144,000 people are sealed. Who are these people? I'm going, to leave, I'm going to let that question linger a bit. Some have taken it literally. Some have said these are Jewish people, Jewish Christians. I mean, there's a long laundry list of, of potential ways to identify the 144,000. We have entire religions built up around 144,000. I'm sorry to tell you, but the van's already full in that religion. <laughs> The 144,001, you're out of luck, buddo. So it's interesting that these are tallied like a census, like the book of Numbers. Now think about this for a, a moment. What was number, the book of Numbers way back in the Torah and the Old Testament? What was it about? They were moving across the wilderness. They knew soon they would be invading the land of Canaan, and they were doing a census uh, partially just to tell the population, but partially to know who, how many men of war do we have prepared for battle. Guess what? We're headed for the promised land. It's a war, right? We're going to win, right? And so this is the 144,000. I prefer and think it's probably symbolic in nature for a number of reasons which we don't have time 
to get into this evening because of all the material we're going to be covering. So as the seals are unsealed, Rezegui, or Rezegui, I still can't figure out how to pronounce his name. I looked online, still can't figure it out. As the seals are unsealed, the saints are sealed. World's coming unglued. God is putting his protective stamp upon his people. Now the mark of the beast gets a whole lot of publicity, right? A lot of people talk about it. But just as important, or perhaps more important, is the mark that God places on his people. I don't think it's a literal mark, but it certainly is some kind of seal that sets apart God's people from those who, do not, uh, who are not God's people. Then John looks out and sees an innumerable multitude. He sees a, a, a particular number, 144,000, probably symbolic. It's a very significant uh, uh, numeral. Then he sees an innumerable multitude that virtually cannot be counted. They are ethnically and linguistically diverse, beyond number. They are clothed in white robes. Their sins have been cleansed. They are holding palm branches. They are crying out, saying, What salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then, what happens? The angels celebrate the salvation of human beings in a sevenfold doxology. Amen. Watch this. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They are celebrating the salvation story of these people who have been blood washed, who have made it through difficult times and circumstances, who, are now, who have now been sealed in and who are now standing in front of the throne. What is our ultimate destiny? All, every person here in the sound of my voice to one day be standing around that throne worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the throne. Who are these and where did they come from? John is asked. Uh, <clears throat> Sir, you know, that's a good way to deflect questions. That's what you do with a lot of questions you're asked about the book of Revelation. Ask your pastor. He knows, right? Sir, you know, right? Never mind. So those who came out of great tribulation have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we have a grand homecoming described at the end of this chapter. What is it going to be like? Do you want to know what the afterlife is like for those who have been sealed, for those who have been redeemed? What do they do? What is their eternal state? They, they stand before the throne. They serve the Lord day and night. The one on the throne dwells among them. We're getting, by the way, foreshadowings of the closing finale of the book that describes in even more detail what the uh, eternal living will be doing in his presence. No more hunger, thirst, heat from the sun. I, I'm going to like that a lot. Have, don't have to wear a hat anymore. The lamb shepherds and leads them to living fountains of water. God will remove all their sorrow. Wow. Doesn't it sound great? Amen. No more tears. No more pain. Being in the presence of Jesus. Standing in his immediate presence. Forever and ever and ever. That's God's plan. That's God's will for each and every one of us. Can we just thank him today? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Sin is so temporal. The pleasures of sin are just for us a little season. But to stand blood-washed in his presence lasts forever and ever and ever. The end. The end. How can it be the end? We're only at... Oh, we got... There's another PowerPoint. What do you know? Let's see if we can find it. We'll pull it up here. You didn't want me to shortchange you by only covering two chapters tonight, right? God forbid. All right. Now we move on to Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Have you been practicing the name of the book, by the way? It's Revelation, singular. And if someone says to you, they start talking about the book of Revelations, ask them, have you, do you have the seal of God? No, just so the seven angels blowing their trumpets, here they are. There they are. I think there's seven of them. I counted, at least, when I, at least my PowerPoint crew that creates, creates these for me, they counted. I know that. All right. So now we move on to the seven trumpets. Finally, along the long-awaited Oh, I'm sorry, the seventh seal. I got, I, every once in a while I can't, I don't count very well, but the seventh seal. What happened to the seventh seal? We had one, two, three, four, five, six. And what happened in between? Can you say it? An interlude, right? This, so after the six seals, a long interlude, and we're waiting for the seventh to show up, and finally the seventh shows up. It's going to be good. It's going to come with a bang. It's going to be violent and scary, Right? Wrong. It was silence in heaven. Silence in heaven. The seventh. Silence? This is the noisiest book in the Bible. And the seventh seal brings silence. What is that all about? Keener points out, and I quote, after six thunderous seals of judgment and dramatic interlude, the the reader may be pardoned for a sense of anticlimax when reading the first seal and hear the final seal rather and hearing silence. Yet this very anticlimax is part of the narrative's dramatic jarring technique, shocking us into attention with its ironies. We go from thundering hoofbeats and cataclysmic destruction to silence. Silence is good once in a while, isn't it? And we get another inside look at what's happening around the altar. Incense, prayer, smoke comes up. And we reach a segue, a transition point. Surprises the reader to learn that there's more judgments to come. Right? I thought the sixth seal indicated everything. The whole creation is is caving in. and, And it's over and the day of the Lord has arrived. This is part of Revelation's technique. To get us thinking this has got to be the end. And yet there always seems to be more to come. So reintroduces the altar as a literary prop. If we look back at the fifth seal. And demonstrates the role of prayer in God's plan. Which forms part of the ingredients of judgment. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. According to Revelation, our prayers that go up to heaven are part of God's eschatological plan. And he responds, and these are, he mixes them. He will end up mixing them with the smoke of the incense, which becomes part 
of the, uh, uh, the, the trumpet judgments. So it forms a prelude to the trumpets. And then we move on. Noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And there came lightnings, thunderings, and an earthquake in great hail. Chapter eleven nineteen. And the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran upon the ground. Exodus nine twenty three. So we're seeing a very important theme: eschatological storms, end time storms, which are beyond anything our meteorologists have ever recorded. They are fearsome, horrific storms. Most of us have at one time or another, have seen the devastating powers of, of tornadoes and other kinds of storms rip through, rip through community, cause all kinds of chaos. I've, we were in Jop the city of Joplin uh, not too long after they had the tornado, horrible tornado go in and, and uh, 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 do all kinds of damage, and many, many people were killed. This is a horrific storm that begins. And so the, the trumpets echo the plagues upon... Egypt. So there's a sense in which our author, John, is wanting us to think of this as a sort of a new exodus. Each of the trumpets, in one way or another, will echo some of the various plagues that were enacted upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. What was the purpose of the plagues? God just totally hated Egypt and wanted to wipe out every person there. Well, that wasn't really what they were about. It was because he was wanting his people to be set free from Egyptian bondage and be able to go out and worship him. But Pharaoh was uh, 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 persistent that he would not go in with it. So these plagues are designed to convince Pharaoh. These plagues were designed to convince Pharaoh to release Yahweh's people to serve him. And Roloff notes, and I quote, the plagues are to be understood as demonstrations of God's power against faithless humanity by which he answers the prayer of his earthly church. As the day of Jesus approaches, our prayers should go up even more fervently, right? God, deliver us. God, see what's happening. And if you read the book of Exodus, the, the Israelites began to cry out because they were under such harsh bondage and they wanted to be free they wanted the liberty to be able to worship the Lord as he pleased so the plagues don't have the character of destructive judgment Roloff notes but rather of a sign that calls to repentance and that it points to God's power over the world and history God demonstrates his power in order thus to lead to his recognition trying to get people to follow him all right let's move quickly we may uh, actually skip our, our Q&A session for this opening session this evening, but we'll pick up at the very end with some Q&A. Seven angels, seven trumpets. Let's go through the seven trumpets. The first trumpet, the grass is burning. If you know any farmers, it's, it gets pretty bad when your crops are on fire. So the first trumpet destroys a third of all trees, and the grass. Can you imagine a third of all the trees? And we already got environmentalists worried about our trees. Trees are important in the process of uh, the air we breathe and so forth. Imagine a third of them being destroyed and, and grass being obliterated. No grass means no food for animals and so forth. And this parallels the seventh plague in the book of Exodus uh, where many of the key crops and the foliage were destroyed, but some were spared. 
And then, the, and then, of course, the hail didn't fall on the Israelites. God protecting his people, right? But allowing the plagues to fall upon Egypt. So the injury to the hail and fire, Thomas writes, uh, I'm sorry, the imagery of hail and fire mixed with blood would be pregnant with meaning for the hearers. Such connections with the Exodus tradition perhaps suggest to the hearers that just as God sent plagues upon the enemies of his people while preserving from their tormenting effects, so he is about to act in the present. Second trumpet, this looks pretty nasty by that, that painting. What's going to happen in the, in the second trumpet? Something like a flaming mountain is tossed into the sea. Can you imagine a, a, a one of the Grand Canyon mountains on fire being thrown into the Atlantic Ocean? A third of the sea is turned to blood. A third of the sea creatures perish. A third of ships are destroyed. And it reminds, of course, of the, the, the plagues upon Egypt in which uh, the waters were turned to blood. All right. The third trumpet. Does anyone, by the way, feel like you want to? You, you don't want to catch the brunt of this stuff. Anyone? Anyone out there? This, this is pretty nasty stuff. So the third trumpet. This one doesn't sound too good either. Wormwood. Wormwood was a was a uh, woody shrub with a bitter Aramaic, yeah, Aramaic, ar- aromatic. There we go. There's my blooper. That's only my first one. He had like fifteen of them. This bitter star is like thrown down to the earth and it creates devastation. All right, the fourth trumpet, darkness. Where have we seen that in the book of Exodus? Darkness was upon the entire land. Darkness. Darkness is scary. A third of the sun is struck. A third of the moon and a third of the stars. Can you imagine it being dark out all the time? Well, those who probably lived in parts of uh, Alaska know what it's like to have no sunlight at all come up, to live in darkness. But this is even more horrific because heavenly bodies have been struck. Next, we are told of the three woes that are coming. Woe, woe, woe. That sounds pretty bad. I'm, I'm not liking any of this other stuff. They, they all sound like a pretty bad day. Now we're told that some woes are coming. That must be some really bad, really bad stuff. The fifth trumpet, it's going to get pretty ugly here. We got the locusts from hell showing up. Let's, let's hear about them. A subterranean door was opened. These are nasty critters. Better get your, uh, your uh, bug spray out and, and work on these. The stars fall, a star falls, a key was given to the bottomless abyss or the underworld, and a, which smoke belches out of this, this uh, pit and darkens the cosmos. It's a pretty nasty place, you don't want to visit there. Bizarre hybrid locusts emerge, and these aren't the kind that you think of locusts, they eat grass and trees and so forth. These are, these are nasty things that attack and torture people. For those who don't have the seal of God on them, it will attack them and torture them for five months, which incidentally is the life cycle of a locust. So, there, so as Rezegui points out, 
for the five months these things are loose, they're just, they're just, killing, they're just hurting people. And it's pretty nasty. People will seek death and not be able to find it. Well, let's not, we gotta, we got to hurry up here. I don't want to end on an intermission with something this bad. So the fifth trumpet makes an Egyptian locust plague seem like a walk in the park. And the locust, the king of the locust is Abaddon in the Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek, which means to destroy. This is the angel of the abyss. He's a bad dude, a bad character. No wonder he lives down in, down in the uh, underworld, the netherworld. And so the sixth trumpet, we got about a minute left here. The altar speaks. And John says, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpets. Amazing how these plagues originate from the throne room itself. And I see that we are at uh, 20 after, which is my signal, speaking of time, to uh, now move into intermission. Did you want to make any announcement about that? Or? Yeah, finish, finish it. Finish it? You want me to finish the whole uh, no, trumpet? The trumpet? Okay, we'll finish the trumpets. So, Stephen likes this part. A ginormous cavalry... 200 million strong emerges, an army riding fire-breathing hybrid horses. Kids should get excited. This sounds like some of the stuff that they play on their, on their devices. You know, it's crazy. I, don't, I mean, I don't do it. Well, these kids do out there in the front row there. A third of mankind is killed, and the survivors, watch this, do not repent of their idolatry, worshiping demons. Dumb demons that can't speak, can't think, can't hear, made of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, and they refuse to repent of their murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and their thievery. Whoa, did, you, did that work up there? That was cool. That was for you, Stephen. Oh, here we go. Look at that. I didn't even realize how close we were to the end. But now we can have our intermission. You can have your intermission. All right, so one word of note. We have uh, drinks and chips for our intermission. One word of note, though, the chip bags are not recycled.